1: Welcome to Real Vision. It's Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020, Election Day here in the US. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by Harry Krishnan of SCT Capital. But first, the day's stories from Hallie Drasnan.
2: Hey Ash, well, Election Day in the US is underway. How is everyone feeling? Excited, anxious. Americans, along with so many observers around the world, are eagerly awaiting the results. If you've got money invested in the markets anywhere around the world, you would be forgiven for being nervous about what's about to happen over the next few hours, you know, even days and possibly weeks. All major indexes were up on Tuesday. Equity markets are enjoying a very bullish move. I think the U.S. election has helped investors look beyond the COVID-19 crisis a bit. European and Asian markets were also higher. There is so much uncertainty around the vote due to the unprecedented nature of this year. Let's tick through it. It's taking place during a once in a generation pandemic. We're expected to see record high turnout. We're seeing more early voting than ever before. This year's campaigns have also spent more money too than ever before. Markets are focused on whether one party wins both the White House and control of Congress. It's an outcome that could determine the size and speed of a new stimulus package. If President Trump wins along with the Senate, is there a lame duck spending package? Or will House Speaker Nancy Pelosi make them wait until next year, if it happens at all? If Biden wins with the Senate, Do we rally in anticipation of a massive spending bill, or do we sell off for the next two months as people lock in 2020 capital gains tax rates and, you know, earnings numbers get cut ahead of a possible corporate tax rate increase in 2021? Also, a lot of eyes on how emerging markets may benefit from the election outcome, a Biden win, and the assumption around a larger stimulus package, you might see the dollar drop, But if Trump wins a second term, there's a likelihood of more trade tensions and protectionism. uh, You could see the dollar strengthen. Investors will be paying close attention to early results from Florida, North Carolina, Georgia and Arizona. All four of these states went to President Trump in 2016 and a Biden victory could signal the president is heading for defeat. Uh, You know, markets will react accordingly, I think, if Biden wins one or more of these states. All of this should really be in the bag by the time European markets are set to trade. Attention will then also turn to Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. These states are expected to take longer to count their votes, you know, given the volume of mail-in ballots. The worst-case scenario, of course, could be a contested outcome with some kinds of legal challenge, then not only do we see an end to this market rally, but volatility will increase. So to be continued, folks. In other news, a stunning turnaround for Ant Group, China's largest financial technology company. It was expected to go public on Thursday in a dual listing on both the Hong Kong Stock Exchange and Shanghai Star Market, but it was suspended by Chinese regulators today. The move comes after the People's Bank of China and three other financial regulators summoned Ant co-founder and billionaire Jack Ma and two other Ant Group executives for questioning on Monday. Just over a week ago, Ma publicly criticized Chinese regulators for stifling innovation by being too risk-averse. There were, quote, major issues that might cause it to, quote, not meet the listing conditions or disclosure requirements. It's a very last-minute change. Suspending this late in the IPO process is really unprecedented. This is the first time that Chinese regulators have taken such dramatic actions on the eve of such a large IPO. This exacerbates the brewing conflict between large Chinese tech companies and powerful regulators. Chinese regulators clearly want to put out statements that they're the ones in charge, the ones in control. Ants is likely to adjust the IPO valuation as a result of this and delay its launch date, of course. We reported last week this was going to be the biggest IPO in history at $35 billion. The IPO would have given Ant a market value of about $315 billion based on filings. That's bigger than JPMorgan Chase and, you know, four times the size of Goldman Sachs. On Monday, the China Banking and Insurance Regulatory Commission, one of the regulators that had summoned the Ant executives, proposed new rules for China's booming micro-lending market. The rules could mean that Ant would have to set aside more cash for the loans it facilitates and would place more credit risk on its balance sheet. Shares of Alibaba, which owns about a third of Ant, fell as much as 9% on Tuesday. Other U.S. listed company stocks also fell. JD.com, Baidu, and Tencent. You know, I'm seeing some investors think this could be a buying opportunity. These stocks all have seen um, gains in 2020. And, uh, you know, now they're um, a bit lower. So on that note, back to you, Ash.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n-ads.com
1: thanks Haley. welcome harry
3: well thank you very much ash
1: i have a feeling harry that this is going to be the wonkiest ever episode of the real vision daily briefing
3: I hope so. I am to please, so we'll see.
1: (laughs) So counter-programming against uh, the constant election coverage here today. You know, Harry, we've known each other for a while. Uh, You're an options and macro guy and one of the rare anti-fragility people who has a a PhD in chaos (laughs) theory uh, and knows a whole lot of crazy math around particle physics that makes me dizzy.
3: Okay, I've got the t-shirt. We can continue with that. So, 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 you know. know
1: you're, you're, you know you manage various hedging hedging strategies uh, at SCT Capital, uh, which is a hedge yeah. fund here in New York City. Uh, and we were talking uh, a few uh, a few days ago about this election uh, and the potential for uh, hedging positions and how you see that unfolding. Give us the fifty thousand foot overview of where you are. But first, before I before you do that, I should probably make full disclosure. We may it's possible be writing about this at some point together.
3: Uh, I won't say either way about that. The, the 50,000 view position is basically, it's now too late to put anything up. So the real question is, what are you going to do about it? If the market moves strongly against you tomorrow, whatever that market might be, what's your plan? Do you have a plan? And one of the reasons that people say to me, at least nowadays, and this wasn't always the case, you look so calm. The market's violent, and you're looking pretty chilled. Well, the reason is, I think there's always something you can do to improve the quality of your portfolio. It could be something as simple as taking a third of your position off. And if you do that, at least you minimize regress a bit. You know, If markets are gyrating wildly, you're going to make enough if you're right on the direction anyway. So better to cut it down to a point that you can tolerate and keep playing the game.
1: Right. So at the most basic level this is just about trimming your sales.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, it it kind of flies in the face of buying the dip, which is a, one of the ultimate US equity strategies every time the equity market drops, go in and buy it. That is true, but that sort of violates the idea that people have real positions on. Sometimes they use leverage and they need to make their money when they can. Instead of just riding out every storm without regard for what their prime broker might be doing or what their risk management management team might be doing or what their you know their physical system might be doing their heart and brain might be doing at the time so yeah,
1: yeah, so that's the basics. what's the next level of complexity up in terms of the way you think about these positions?
3: well, I for a long time, I fancied myself as a debunker. I know George Orwell had that wonderful phrase that he felt that his best writing was political in nature. And that probably that's the wrong time to talk about it now. But debunking is one of my big things. And a lot of people have come on the air and said, oh, look, there are various scenarios. There's the blue wave where Biden wins and the Dems win the Senate and so on. So they have a plurality. There's Another setup where Trump wins and the Republicans win the Senate, they hold on to the Senate and so on. And the dangerous scenario is the one where there's a conflict, where nothing gets done. Biden wins and the Republicans hold on.
1: Republicans hold on, meaning they hold on in the Senate.
3: Yeah, now this presupposes that um, the lack of political conflict will result in a central bank that is incredibly accommodative. You know, the, is willing to ease to no end, whether it's uh, you know the blue wave, or it's Trump and, and uh, the Republican Senate as well. But if you really look at the data, you might come up with, with a different picture. And one chart that I want to show you, and it's pretty primitive, but I still like it, is, uh it's a chart called the trend strength of the Fed balance sheet. And what you find is these huge spikes in the trend growth Of the Fed's balance sheet uh, post GFC, post the global financial crisis. This chart we're looking at, this is percent
1: change of, I guess it's WALCL, the the total Fed assets balance sheet.
3: It is, but it's a trend indicator. So it's looking at the three month trailing average minus the 18 month trailing average divided by what it started as. So it's the percentage change, but it's a trend. Got it. And what, what you find is you see a few blips over the years. You see some in the 30s and the 40s during World War II. And you see some micro or mini blips in the 50s and uh, in the 90s, um, 50s, 70s, and 90s. But the giant moves are in the post-global financial crisis period. Now, think about it this way. Just think of the math. So we're at about 7.1 trillion in Fed assets today. If the central bankers got together and felt that they could do another 500 billion of easing and everything would be hunky-dory, that doesn't bear itself out based on the chart that I will present to you next, which is how big is the balance sheet that's required. If you look at 20%, even 40% increases in Fed assets, they don't necessarily have a reliably beneficial impact on credit spreads. So if credit spreads are the barometer of risk, uh, you don't get enough stabilization by doing things on that order of magnitude.
1: Talk us through what we're looking at at this chart the $15 trillion balance sheet required.
3: Yeah, okay. Well, there are two things that the Fed can generally do they can monkey with the Fed funds rate. Or they can change the size of their balance sheet. Now, the balance sheet of the Fed does increase. It increases naturally. More paper currency is issued on a fairly regular schedule every year. You can look at a natural growth rate. So, really, what I'm interested in is some kind of above trend growth or below trend contraction in Fed assets. And the thesis that I'm putting forward is that that should have an impact on markets. Now, it should only have an impact on markets in the median case, not in the extreme case. We cannot say much about um, what's going to happen if the market goes into a terrible spiral and the Fed acts aggressively. We can only say what happened over the years, let's say from 1914 to the present, when the Fed acted beyond a certain natural level of QE expansion. And I think the evidence suggests that when they don't act super aggressively, meaning that they don't add 0.5 times or 50% of what they had on their balance sheet, um, the outcomes are pretty unstable. They're pretty noisy. We don't know what's going to happen. And that's important, especially given that there have been two bouts of pretty extreme quantitative easing over time.
1: In layman's terms, if the balance sheet doesn't expand significantly significantly, As a percentage of the existing balance sheet, you just don't get the bang for the buck. So it's not just the absolute change. You have to continually increase the the balance sheet by a substantial percentage. You're saying 50% of the existing balance sheet before that impact filters through uh, from a credit easing perspective.
3: Yes, exactly. Um, Basically, what I'm saying as well is that the impact of Fed easing, or QE, as I define it, which is just... Unusual increases in Fed assets is not reliable unless you really, unless the Fed really pulls on that lever. So um, every time the base level increases, you get this geometrical growth in what the Fed has to do to get the same output.
1: Right. So pr- basically, a law of diminishing return uh, in a geometric sense.
3: Yeah. Well, you said it better than I did.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yes, but I can't do the math. So that.
3: uh... I'm still trying. I mean, chaos theory by its nature is unpredictable. So (laughs) very good. Okay. So
1: let's keep going. Uh, What's the next step in the thesis?
3: Well, there are various, you know, the way I think about managing money is that you have to manage money over various horizons. Mm. You don't just say, oh, I'm looking to make 10% over the next year. Not if you're a sophisticated. Uh, hedge fund manager. So I'm going to lock and load and wait for a year and see how I did. Basically, what you want to do is you want to have bets that you put on that will realize themselves, good or bad, over different horizons. This is something I've talked about over the years, which is that there's not only asset diversification, there's also time horizon diversification. So as you contract the horizon, you might say, well, who matters on the long term? And so what, I'm, what I've argued in the previous two charts is that central banks, credit expansion, the banking system, the velocity of money, these are all factors that need to work their way through the system, ignoring sentiment, which is an increasingly important component of things nowadays. But they need to work their way through the system to result in higher asset prices. And I can go into that in great detail, and I'll probably do that in a... Uh, another diatribe with you on another day. But over shorter horizons, what's really driving the markets? Well, it's positioning, access to credit and positioning. And now, anecdotally, I've heard a few things. One thing I've heard is that the more retail-oriented prime brokerage outfits that support options trading, I will not name names, are being very aggressive about cutting back on their clients' risk limits. That's point number one. And point number two is that if you look at the dealer community, and if you think about what drives what, and I know I know a big real vision thesis is that look at the bond market, look at the yield curve, that drives everything. Correct. That has historically been correct. It will probably be correct in the future because yields are dependent on, or the changes in yields are dependent on fewer inputs than equity prices or other markets where they're also idiosyncratic or company-specific factors that drive things. But for yields, it's pretty simple. And so that's the most clean and pure expression of the market's view on inflation, growth, and if you think in terms of a term premium, fear, or greed. So you can go into that. Um, But um, if you think about it over shorter horizons, Dealer positioning is very important. And what dealer positioning means is that the options markets and even the individual security markets are dominated by high frequency or higher frequency market makers. They might be officially nominated as market makers, but more likely they are computer-based algos run by firms that are not that heavily capitalized that are trying to skim off a little bit of edge on every trade that they do. Now, in the the options markets, what you find is that there is a bias, and I've spoken about this in a previous Real Vision interview, toward institutions wanting to sell coals and buy puts. So they want to harvest income and protect against Armageddon. Now, if that's the case, and nobody else wants to take the other side of that trade, the dealers or the market makers have to have to uh, put those positions on their books. They have to warehouse those positions. Now, how do they manage that? They have to hedge. So they hedge by buying and selling the S&P. Now, if they wind up in a funky position where they're short puts, the dealers, that is, and the market is shanking down to where they're short, suddenly, as we like to say it, they're short gamma, right. they're short convexity. They're short the wings, whatever you want to call it. So, if the market goes any further down, they have to start selling into weakness. If the market rallies, they have to buy the rallies. So, what you get is exaggerated sawtooth like moves around those options that market makers are short.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lipsyn ads. Go to com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
1: Right. Now, for, for people who are relatively new to the derivative space, relatively new to the option space, uh, and, and who don't entirely understand the role, uh, that market makers play uh, as intermediaries between buyers and sellers. Let's unpack some of what you just said because I think it's such a critical point.
3: Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's uh, there's a lot to say, and I tend to be a bit bit too terse. But um, if um, institutions want to buy puts, if they're worried that the S and P is going to drop next month, somebody has to take the other side of that trade.
1: Buying so, puts is the equivalent of being short. So effectively, take on a short position through derivatives by buying the puts.
3: Yes. So the institutions are buying insurance. So the market makers or the dealers or whomever you, however you call them, have to sell that insurance. It's different from the stock market where there, oh, there's a transfer of ownership from people who owned a stock to somebody else who wants to buy it. Here, new contracts can be created, and those right. contracts that are created by the dealers to be hedged. They have to be hedged by the dealers. And so if the dealers find themselves very short insurance and the market drops, suddenly they're out of pocket unless they do something. Right. They need to start selling into weakness. Conversely, if the market rebounds, they have to buy aggressively. And if you look at chart three, which is called is uh, vulnerable to short-term drop, What you'll find is that the dealer community, if you believe what Squeeze Metrics is saying, which in my view is a very good, rough and ready approximation, the dealers are vulnerable now. If the market drops from here, I know there's been a bounce in the past two days. If the market drops from here, you will see short term selling from people who are simply hedging their positions. They're not taking a view, they're just hedging. It's an informationless trade from the standpoint of news flow. But it's full of content in terms of what the dealers need to do to get out of Dodge, basically.
1: Right. right.
3: And so I think we are at a vulnerable position here in the S&P. Now, a lot of people have argued that, as I mentioned, that oh well it's the rates that drive things. So wait for the signal from the rates. And I agree with that. I'm a convert, I've long advocated that position too. Um but you may not get that signal this go around. And slide four or chart four is the 10 year note, the US 10 year note futures contract adding as, acting as almost a pegged asset, but like the Euro Swissie cross or something like that. It mm. sure looks like it over the past year. You basically get changes in level. It's a bit like a step function where um, whenever there's a fear event, boom bond prices go up, or conversely, yields go down, and vice versa. And vol spikes, because no one knows how far that move is going to go, how far that step's going to go. And then vol collapses, and the market just kind of flatlines at the new level. Now, if tomorrow you wake up, and you see that the S&P has shanked, but 10-year vol is pretty flat, you might be able to trade around the position. That's assuming that you're comfortable with the amount, the size that you have on. If you're not comfortable with that, of course, there's a different different set of uh, exigencies that you need to deal with. But if you are and you don't get a signal from the bond market, maybe you can trade around the position. And that's something that we've been doing in our, our overlays and in our macro option strategies as well. So um, it's something to think about. I mean, if I had to say in a nutshell what I would do if I woke up and I was long up the wazoo in the S&P tomorrow, and the S&P were down 5%, which I'm not predicting, I would say you've got two choices. One is buy some gamma pronto. The other is find a place where you can hedge where volatility is not too expensive, where you can buy that gamma or that convexity cheaply.
1: So let's talk about gamma and convexity, because this is something that's not the most intuitive concept to understand. So gamma is the rate of change in the delta uh, per single point move in the underlying asset. Um, Talk a little bit about why that's so important uh, and why those relative changes matter so much.
3: Well, gamma, if you're short gamma, basically the idea is it's a measure of how quickly you get your face ripped off. In other words... um, things can multiply very, very rapidly against you if you were short gamma. And short gamma is highly desirable most of the time because you collect income. It's the old saying that you pick up those coins in front of the bulldozer until you get run over. And in delta one markets, which is a techie term, there is no acceleration in losses if the market moves against you. When you short gamma... Delta, one, Delta one means you have bought or sold a futures contract, or you bought or sold a stock. There's no implicit convexity in the right. instrument that you bought or sold. Maybe, maybe the company's levered. That's a different, different ball of wax. But there's no uh, implicit levered bet in the position you've stuck on. Whereas if you start selling options or buying options, you're right. either... Investing in a strategy that will rip your face off at an ever-accelerating rate, right. pardon the analogy, or that will uh, be quite beneficial to you at an ever-increasing pace. So um, convexity is very important. And that is the name of the game in the option space. And for those people out there, and you've had numerous wonderful guests, you know, Jerry Hayworth and various other people, they are gurus or avatars of convexity. They're trying to buy five-to-one, ten-to-one bets that could work in their favor at low cost. And they're willing, they have the patience or the pig-headedness or the ego to ride the storms. And you need people like that. You need a mindset like that to be able to really manage those cases where which are pretty rare, but which can wipe out your performance pretty rapidly, because compounded returns are based on never losing too much. You lose too much in one go, you lose 50% from 100, you need to now make 200% just to get back to square one. So compounding is vital in this business. And finding sources of gamma is uh, really important. And so that's one one idea that I've got, which is that if you want to trade the S and P gamma in a gamma-tastic way, uh, figure out or try to estimate where the dealers might be vulnerable, and buy protection below that level because it'll bla- it'll kind of blast through. The other idea is look at other markets like the global yield curve markets where volatility actually has been compressed ever since the sea. Sequ- of spikes is uh, with, with the most exaggerated one occurring in March 2020, where nice. um, you know 10-year vol went up over 50 from a base of say 10, and now is around five or six. So I think there's some good value buying opportunities if you think there's going to be a break on the post-election basis. So if I had to summarize, I'd say number one, minimize regrets. Cut your risk. Realize that there'll be enough volatility that if you get the direction right, you should be OK. Number two, realize that the S&P could be uber choppy. And so you better be prepared to trade both sides uh, with consideration for burn or the high volatility you'd pay for insurance. And the final one is find other assets, whether it's currencies uh, or, god forbid, I'll sing the real vision from the Real Vision um, song sheet, uh, crypto or gold, find other places that where if the Fed or the central banking system at large has to ease at the same percentage level that they have, there'll be a massive balance sheet beyond what people could have possibly imagined even a few years ago.
1: Yeah. Harry, I have three questions for you about this specific case. So the first is, how do you find those price levels? The second is, how do you think about the duration when you look at the kink that developed in the in the curve uh, going forward uh, around the election? And then the third is, how do you think about that asset allocation at the most global level when you think about uh, when you think about risk?
3: Well. That's a great question. And one of the issues with the kink in the volatility term structure was that people were very uncertain, or investors at large, were very uncertain about what the outcome of the election would be. And they made the tacit assumption that the election would be decided in November or in early November. And so that created an exaggerated kink. I think as some investors or some agents realize that this may not be decided on the day, not that it's likely, but that, that it was a plausible outcome, some of the volatility risk drifted back into November and December. Now, a lot of people have been confused about this, including myself, but I understand this now, which is that why was it that October volatility was so elevated relative to November when the election was going to take place in November? Why And why is it now that November has picked up and December picked up? Well. Remember that the VIX futures, when they settle, are the collective market's estimate of risk over a 30-day forward horizon. So in October, when the VIX futures expired, that 30-day forward horizon for the VIX encapsulated the election. Hmm. So you had this exaggerated kink. And the kink had to go down a little bit over time because things didn't get that bad. I mean, we've had a few sell-offs. You know, SEP was down a little bit, October was down a little bit. There were some bad days, horrible days by 2019 standards, but very benign by the standards of Q1 in this year. So eventually, um, I would argue, and this is an obvious thing to say, that given that markets weren't moving that much, you couldn't justify such high levels in terms of price or volatility for the insurance markets, for the options markets. you know, To have a 2% up and down move every day gives you a 30% volatility level, roughly. The market's only moving up and down on average 1% a day. It's only so long that dealers or the, the financial community at large is going to support a 30 vol. And so that started drifting down a bit. But vol has remained high in equity markets. It's only gone smashed in other markets like um, rates and to to a lesser degree in currencies, and so that's what hap- That's that was the reason for the kink, and the kink kind of pushed itself out. And you know, people may have had the mindset that I have, which is you never want to put all of your uh, chips in the next roll of the dice, in the next um, roulette spin. You want to. Stay in the game as long as you can. So that kind of extended the elevation of volatility further out. And so that, that would be my uh, interpretation of that. So the, the first question
1: uh, was with regard to price level. How do you think about the SP uh, settling here at the end of the day at 33.69? How do you think about those price levels when you're thinking about those contracts?
3: If I'm a purist, I don't think about it much. I mean, I can, I can. mean, there's a big speech that I've been giving for a long time, and I'll give it again very briefly, which is that there are two ways to think about valuation for the S&P. One way is to think about valuation relative to history, and that's the underpinning um, of price-to-earnings, price-to-book, Schiller-Cape, uh, and various other metrics of value. The other way to look at it is the modern view, which is aligned vaguely with MMT and various other things, uh, which says, what else is out there? What do these large institutional allocators have as options? What are they trying to generate in terms of returns? And are those rich or cheap? And so imagine a simple-minded world where you've got stocks and you've got bonds. That's it. And bonds are egregiously expensive. Not expensive in terms of fair value, but in terms of what they can deliver over some medium to long-term horizon for a hold-to-maturity strategy. So let's stick a zero in there for a lot of the developed markets. That forces large institutions into equities to, to meet their return targets. Another good argument, which we have discussed many times offline, Ash, is that there's a relative supply of debt and equity. And anyone who has a strategic asset allocation mandate, whether you believe in that or not, if you believe that enough people do it that way, if the supply of debt has expanded dramatically, the only way that equities can keep pace in dollar terms with the dollar supply of debt, given the massive issuance, is for the prices to go up. And that's what we've seen. We've seen a contraction in the supply of shares of equity, if anything. Usually, that's pretty much a minor oscillation around zero, but the only way for equities to remain a decent percentage of client of institutional client portfolios is for them to bid up the prices of those things until they hit the target weights. And uh, that's really one of the main factors that's going on here that violates the old-fashioned valuation schemes that people were so fixated on until the... Uh, Post GFC regime
1: right. I think you just answered questions one and three simultaneously there. I, you know, I know that this is uh, something that frankly, I struggle to understand at times. Uh, but one of the things that about this framework that I think is so valuable when we were getting incredible gyration, In the last, over the last several months post COVID uh, around uh, tech stock valuations, your model uh, seemed to have a lot more to say about what was actually happening behind the scenes uh, than a lot of other people who were watching the market.
3: Well, I hope so. I mean, um, it's to be fair and to give credit where it's due, they're the philosophical economist who writes these gnarly articles that you really need to go through in detail. He or she inspired me to look into this, which is that you have to look at flows. Flows drive everything. Above valuations, it's flows. It's how much credit is being created. Is that credit propagating through the system? And if it is, it has to find a place to go. And it will go to equities as much as anything else. And if corporations or other entities are bearish on 10-year prospects, but they're more that they're flush with cash and they can get credit for free. They're not gonna build a bridge or invest in the latest, greatest rocket to go to Mars. They're gonna dump it in the stock market, right? Or buy back their shares. And that sort of paradigm really has appealed to me. That debt is, while you can be left lean left or right and have a view on debt, debt is not universally bad for risky assets. It can be good. More debt as it flows through the system leads to more deposits, leads to more spending power. Of course, the cycle will have to end at some point, but short to medium term, it's bullish, risky assets.
1: Yeah. The other thing that you've made me think about is the extent to which the derivatives market, the options market moves prices in the underlying, uh, the gamma squeeze issues, uh, and some of the issues around dealer positioning uh, and dealer exposure.
3: Well, thank you for that. I mean, I struggle with this as well, and you know, we've had this discussion before. One of the first things you can do as a someone who thinks about the market is to think: what's the most liquid contract? I don't care what it is. What's the most liquid thing you can trade? Now, it used to be uh, U.S. uh, bond futures or note futures, and so on, or shorter in. Now perhaps it's S&P E-mini futures, if that's the case, then the most liquid contract in a world of algorithmic trading, where it's increasingly important, drives everything. So the lead and lag isn't a functional relationship as much as it is, where's the liquidity? Wherever that liquidity is, people can lay off their risk or pile into more risk. And it really boils down to that.
1: Yeah. So, final thoughts, Harry, as people wake up tomorrow, uh, at least uh, in, in the wake of uh, whatever. I wish these, them well. I wish yeah, them well. That, yes, me too. But what are your you know, final thoughts on how they can think about what they see when they get to their screen tomorrow morning?
3: Well, rule number one um, that I tell my wife and I try to tell myself is never panic. Never panic. There's always something you can do if you have to cut risk don't do it too dramatically, do it in stages, have a plan, play the plan, and don't doubt yourself. And one of the reasons that managed futures and systematic trend-following strategies and systematic strategies in general have been so popular is because they have a plan. There's a plan encoded into them. They might leave something on the table, but hopefully they can keep playing. And that's the message I'd like to get across. Think about what the potential outcomes might be.
1: The great Bear Bryant, Alabama football coach, famous quotation, follow the plan, and you'll be surprised at how successful you can be. Most people don't have a plan, and that's why most people are so easy to beat. I
3: love it. Love it. He was the guy with the tweed hat, right?
1: Yeah, the herringbone hat. Yeah, bless him.
3: Okay. So you were saying, I'm sorry, your final thoughts. Uh, My final thought is think of what could happen tomorrow. Think of what you're going to do if it happens. Make your decision tree. Trade it. I mean, that applies to retail as much as it does to the greatest hedge fund in the world. And if you execute your plan, you will have reduced your unpalatable downside scenarios, but you also will have reduced regrets, which allows you to keep playing in this game. And that's the best we can hope for. Another shot at the. uh, Another shot at the
1: table. Yeah. My only helpful advice is what I said yesterday. Don't fight with friends and family on Facebook about politics. It doesn't change anything. You know, know, look, 160 million uh, votes expected in total today by some estimates I saw in USA Today. We've got about 100 million people who have turned out already. The Trump-Clinton election in uh, 2016 was decided by about 80,000 votes, distributed across a handful of states. It strikes me uh, that you can throw out the polling data at this point. Just about anything can happen.
3: Well, uncertainty is the nature of our game, so deal with it well. That's my message.
1: Very well said, Harry. Thanks so much for joining us.
3: My pleasure.